the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit abide with you now and forever. As the night settles over the earth, O Lord, so your love settles over us and enfolds us in its embrace, and your love will never let us go. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a little device called Greg's Box. And inside it are some envelopes and some pieces of paper and one pen placed after it's stolen, used blood. <clears throat> this is a sort of communication device with me if you wish me to say more about something or ask me a question that you've always wondered but never dared to ask or uh, gentle criticism or anything like that. Um, if you want to respond, you could, a response from me, you could put your name on it or invent some name like Twinkle Toes or Poopsie or whatever and I'll say that I have a message back. There probably ought also to be a Lucille's box but I am willing to be a mail carrier and if you write her name rather than mine on an envelope I will see that it gets there. And these will be out, all of this business will be out there in the table somewhere. I don't know whether that's useful. When I was going to school Whatever the lecturer dished out, you took, and there was no possibility of questioning or response. You just accepted it from on high, a tablet from server. But I do believe that it is the style of modern presentations to allow some sort of feedback and dialogue, and that is the way in which I choose to handle it. I was talking about the CFO day that we share with one another, and Someone came up to me at supper and said about their first prayer group, what a wonderful group we had, a miracle happened, I want to tell you about it sometime, what the miracle is yet. And isn't that beautiful that a first prayer group has so fallen together that miracles are happening on the first day. I want to say, however, that not all prayer groups meet the expectations of those who go to them even with the best of goodwill. And I think the problem is that we oversell them in talks like these. What we say year after year is, Prayer group is the most important experience in camp, and if you don't go to anything else, go to prayer group. And people conclude, wow, this must surely be a knock-your-socks-off experience. I remember going to a movie on the basis of a review. This is the funniest movie that ever made. I'm sorry that I saw the review. It created in me a level of expectation that no movie could ever possibly meet. If only someone had said, I enjoyed the movie, probably you will too, I would have gone and my expectations would have been met and exceeded. Now, truth to tell, the only thing wrong with prayer groups is that we let people into them. 
I'm sure that there are three things that I was going to say with you that can screw up prayer groups, but at the moment I can think of only two, and maybe the Holy Spirit has taken the third one out of my head. On the one hand, the people who say nothing, and on the other hand, the people who say too much. Now, let me speak first about the too much and say it in very great love. Some of us find it easier to talk than others. That's true of anywhere and everywhere we go, and we know that we have a reputation or not for being talkers or being the silent type, and that has to do with personality and a whole lot of factors. All of us need an audience in our lives. We need someone to be a good and faithful listener, and if they do no more for us, they have provided us with a beautiful service. There are people who come to CFO out of the experience that there is no one at home who can listen to them talk. And furthermore, that life back home, and this is despite all our smiling and laughing and jumping and clapping, life back home is at the very least very unsatisfactory. It is a sad life. It is a life's tears. It is a life that raises the question, is there any way out for me? The desperation with which many people come to this camp may be quiet desperation, but it is very real. The prayer group provides us with our only ad hoc small group experience, and the leader invites us to share and we begin to pour out our story, and the story keeps coming. What has happened, how we've reacted to our understanding of the psychological dynamics involving the other people, and we get launched, and we lose track of the fact that if we're only one of 10 people in a prayer group, that really we aren't entitled to more than a tenth of the time of that prayer group. And so we overtalk. There are other people who don't say anything at all. I am sure among, uh, among their number are those who did not themselves choose to come to camp, somewhat put upon in love and have acquiesced and gone along with another's invitation. And prayer group seems like the most forbidding, unnatural activity imaginable. And people wish to sit loose to it all, to be willing to be there, but with an eye towards the door and at least a thought of bolting if things get too heavy. For the people who are naturally quiet, or the people who are quiet because of some suspicion of what this enterprise is all about, of course it is proper to be reticent and to hold back. And I hope that before the week is over, when the group has found itself, when there is a comfort level and a trust level, and these faces and names become familiar, that even the quietest of persons will share. Another problem with prayer groups is that they never get down to praying. They become discussion groups, talking about a wide variety of topics, 
some of which are even controversial and therefore distressing to other people in the group. Uh, discussion is an important part of human experience. I have no problem with lots of discussion going on uh, in the highways and byways of CFO, but not in prayer group. Now, there will be more prayer at the end than at the beginning of the week, and it is quite proper in the opening days to do some personal sharing, but don't fall short of whatever it is that God has for you in the experience of praying first by hearing other people pray and secondly by doing some of the praying yourself. Still haven't got the third thing though. If it's important it will come back at some point. The CFO directory mentions that there are three camps that are just over. One in Michigan, one in New York, and in yesterday. Camp in the province of Alberta ended after lunch today. So there are three groups of who have just been through the experience that we are beginning, and they're going home with a certain measure of joy and courage and confidence, and they're greeting people who didn't share that experience with them, and they're wondering how much to say and how much to keep to themselves. Bless them in their going back into the world. We're never quite clear by the time camp is over which is the real world or what is beyond the boundary of CFO but to that other world we shall surely go. Bless them. Now this is the most CFO'd week of the whole year. There are a half dozen camps that are meeting. We began yesterday, a whole bunch more began today, another one begins tomorrow. As we pray for ourselves, so we pray for each of them that God in God's own way and time visit those places with great and divine love. Oh, Joel, I didn't speak about uh, singing. And um, whenever I begin an Easter Sunday service, I say there are two proper ways to celebrate Easter, either with silence or with song and words are a distant third. And the second part of CFO literature may well not be in the books, except the songbook, this wonderful literature of song that we have. I know there are people who are self-conscious about their singing, who think that they cannot carry a tune, that their voice is offensive to people next to them. Uh, male persons whose voices have just changed and for a number of years afterwards, especially self-conscious about your voice, but the singing is one of the most precious parts, and so give yourself to that, and none will look askance at you. Some years ago, at the close of my mini-career as a prep school teacher, I went mountain climbing with two of my students, Jonathan and Peter. Uh, 
We went climbing up in the presidential range, those great towering granite mounts up north of here an hour and a half, well above tree line, the grandest of which Mount Washington has skiing many years into early June, a little over 6,000 feet high, have to go to North Carolina to find a higher mountain somewhere nearby. We decided that we would climb Mount Madison, another one of the presidential range. The only thing wrong with the president, they neglected to name any mountains for either of two of our greatest presidents, uh, Benjamin and William Henry Harrison. <laughs> we took a path called the airline, which sounds a whole lot easier than it actually is, but we managed to get to the top of Mount Madison in time for dinner, and then we slept, and we had breakfast. All was well until we began to make five mistakes within a half an hour and see if I can get them in proper sequence. In all of the huts that are operated by the Appalachian Mountain Club, a weather forecast comes by radio at 8 in the morning and you are supposed to wait for the weather forecast. We did not. We left at 10 minutes of 8. The weather forecast would have told us one with intention to hike should abandon that idea, drop quickly below tree line and recover one's car and hike another day. There was one raincoat among the three of us. Mine. <laughs> there was no food. All right, those are three mistakes. The fourth mistake was that since our game plan was just to bop over to the top of Mount Washington and bop back again, that we needn't take our packs with us. They would be just so much excess baggage. So we left them in the hut where we had spent the night. The fifth mistake was made about a half an hour after we set out. It began to rain. And one of the rules of hiking is that at the first bad weather, you turn back. We did not. First it sprinkled, and then it showered, and then it gently rained, and then it rained cats and dogs, and we kept on going. Rocks covered with water become like ice to the boot. Clouds hung so that we could barely see from one cairn to the next, from one pile of rocks to the next, the rocks that are placed there for hikers above treeline. On we went. Lightning appeared. Please understand that there were three lightning rods on that ridge that day. Their names were John, Peter, and Greg. <laughs> On we went, 
what we calculated to be a two, two and a half hour hike lengthened to four and a half hours and eventually we came to the summit of Mount Washington. Now when you are in as bedraggled a condition as we were, Washington is not a bad mountain to come to. It has a lodge on top of it. It has a restaurant. You can get hot chocolate and soup, where, uh, which is enough to keep your teeth from chattering. But they don't provide dry clothes to soaking wet people. Another advantage to landing on Mount Washington, which would not have been true had we parked ourselves on any other mountaintop, is that because there's a road to the top, there's a van service. And for some reason or other, bored tourists having nothing better to do in New Hampshire than drive top of Mount Washington in the pouring rain when there was not 10 feet of visibility, they came up the top of the mountain and there were three extra seats in the van and we bought them and went down to the bottom where we were about a two mile hike to another place operated by the Appalachian Mountain Club where we hoped that we could spend the night. So with our boots full of water, we squished over to this place and indeed the lodging and a place of warmth and hot showers and it wasn't quite as bad as it had been. I looked in my wallet and every single piece of paper, even the ones that were tucked inside others that were tucked inside others were soaking wet. I don't know if you know this from personal experience, if you keep a, an appointment book, but black ink holds up a whole lot better than blue ink. Element that I had for the remainder of that calendar year, which was written in blue ink, was obliterated. After supper, my enterprising young friends hitchhiked by three rides around the 14 miles to the base of Mount Madison and retrieved the vehicle, in which were changes of clothing. Things are getting better. The next morning, after breakfast, we drove around to the airway trail. They didn't want me, and I didn't want to be with them, so I sat at the bottom of the mountain while these young 17-year-olds dashed up to the top, found our packs, which had been rifled, but the packs were still there, and brought them back down. I did hint at one point that it would be nice if they paid for the extra and unanticipated night. None, they didn't, but I suppose that that's because they, for the stupidity of it all, There are rules of hiking that have been written down and disseminated for the well-being of hikers. They keep you dry. They keep you from being mercilessly hungry. They keep you from being electrocuted. They keep you from being soaking wet but you don't get arrested for violating any of the rules of hiking, and you can be almost as dumb about it as you want to be, 
and you still have the freedom of the mountains. We in Winnie CFO speak about the laws of the kingdom of God. We might call them just as well the rules. The rule what we human beings gather about the fundamental nature of the universe in which we live and the discovery that our life, if it is lived, congruent with the purposes of God, if our life goes with the flow, that we have the greatest chance, the greatest opportunity of peace in this world and that if we continually set ourselves up at cross-purposes with the will of God, it is not that God is going to put us down. We shall simply fall down by virtue of being stupid about figuring out how it is that we are to align ourselves and to orient ourselves with which is from everlasting to everlasting. I have told you some of the rules of hiking. The laws of the kingdom will be revealed to you in what Lucille and I say or hint at this week. They're riddled through this good book and it is wise for you to discover them sooner than later and pay attention to them sooner so that you may know when to turn back and how to clothe yourself and feed yourself and keep from fiery destruction or whatever. New England has no great river, not the kind of river where ships from all over the world enter its mouth and stream to discharge and receive cargo. No river on which farewells are spoken as people sail apart from one another, perhaps never in this life to see each other again. What we do have is the Connecticut River, which has such a silty and shallow bottom that it has always been unnavigable and continues to be so even to the present day, even with modern technology. If you'd like a piece of trivia, the only river at whose mouth there is no city in the United States, and that's a testimony to its being a C minus D plus river. <laughs> Joe Bishop, who has spoken to us a couple of times and who favored us with his presence as a guest at last summer's camp, writes that he and his first wife grew children at the mouth of the river where it empties into Long Island Sound. They knew it recreationally, its beaches and its sailboats, and that was to them a favorite place. 
And when she was diagnosed with incurable cancer, and after many, many prayers for her healing seemed not to be answered in this life, she pressed of Joe for a last journey of theirs, and that is that they follow the Connecticut River to its mouth. If you have some sense of the geography of New England, you know at one point Vermont quits and becomes Canada. But New Hampshire is a little bit more gutsy in a northward thrust and suspect, although I know nothing about the history of boundaries, some rather aggressive and sure-minded American wanted to claim the whole of the Connecticut River for this country. There are three lakes called the Connecticut Lakes, and they are a remote place indeed. Every 15 or so miles, there's a general store with a single gasoline pump, and there are signs that indicate that most of the come there may be hunters or fisher folk or whatever looking for that type of rural, very rural, outdoor recreational activity. The bishops went to the last town before one comes to the border with Canada, inquired of local guides, secured a map, drove in their car as far as one could drive off any certain road onto trails and paths, and when the car no longer, they got out of the car and followed their little map and saw bubbling up out of the earth a little freshet of water that was the beginning of the river and they lay prone on the ground and drank from it. And she was too faint to stand and said, Joe, I wish I could die here. And after lain there for a bit of time, he picked her up and carried her now wasted body back to the automobile. She did not die there, but she died soon afterwards. Once upon a time, I had a vision, and I want to say that it lasted a long time. It lasted a long time in terms of chronological duration, that is, it lasted of minutes. And it's lasted even longer because I have never forgotten it. Oh, I forget it for long periods of time, but then I come back to it. And the vision was this. I was hiking, and I came across an unexpected great river. I did not know its name, but I felt very much at home when I found it. And I knew if I stayed near it, indeed, if I could find a little boat and get out on it and be carried along by it, that I would be very safe. But I also knew that if for any reason, willfulness or whatever, I walked away from the river and back into the woods, I would become 
lost. The river was meant for me, and it was meant to carry me from the here and now to the then and the there, and I didn't know where there was or when then would be. I didn't care if only I could stay on the river. That is where I belong. A part of the task of a CFO experience is to end the river. Somehow it has to do with the mighty force with which God enters in this world and carries through and passes from this world on the other side and goes on God knows where and that is where we belong. If a camp does a part of its work well, we shall glimpse the river. We find the boat to remain on it. We may somehow think that it's better back in the woods, and it really isn't, but we have the hope of finding the river again. I want to talk about prayer this week. The disciples of Jesus went to him one day and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And that is a work, an important work of our camp experience, that someone guide us in the art of prayer. The very first time that prayer is mentioned in the Bible, it is just a throwaway line and it is one of these curious stories that is so old and so bound up in the social and sexual mores of the time that we find it almost indecipherable and even to cross the story and read forehead and wonder, what is that all about? Is that supposed to be inspiring? I don't know whether the story is inspiring or not, but I can tell you the story. It's the 20th chapter of Genesis, and Abraham, the patriarch of the Hebrew faith, and Sarah, the matriarch, husband and wife, go into a foreign land, a land where they do not feel the least bit welcome, a land where they fear they might very well be bumped off and disappear. And Abraham hits upon a strategy to defend both of them. It is a very odd strategy, and it cannot in any way be commended to us simply because it is scriptural. Abraham decides to pass Sarah on his sister as his unmarried sister, as his eligible unmarried sister. And the king of the region sees this attractive young woman, and as is his custom and is his right in the laws of his kingdom, he invites her home to spend the night. Whatever it is that was on the king's mind, only speculate. 
but whatever it is you're speculating, it didn't happen. There's something about an angel who got in the way of the king's desires, and Sarah spent an untroubled night, and when the king woke in the morning, the angel is blessing him out because he has taken a married woman into him. And he says in immediate self-defense, number one, I didn't know she was married, and number two, nothing happened. And the angel said, number one, it doesn't matter whether you knew she was married or not, she was. And number two, the reason that nothing happened had nothing to do with your self-control. I didn't let it happen. And then the angel goes on with a curious piece of advice. If I were you, Mr. King, I would go find a prophet and have him pray for you because you're in trouble with God. And make of it what you want. That was the very first reference to prayer in the Bible. And it's sort of taken as a matter of fact, taken for granted that people pray. Wouldn't it be wonderful to know how it was that somebody blundered across prayer? I've often wondered why anyone ate the first lobster. Even if you were, even if you were enormously hungry, wouldn't you eat sand before you ate a lobster? Okay, we don't know how it was that people began to pray. There's a bit of mischief in this first story that I want to point out. It is the suggestion that when prayer is required, you'd better go to an expert in order to have it done right. An electrical problem, you go to a licensed electrician. You have a plumbing problem, you go to a licensed plumber. You have a spiritual problem, and you go to a licensed prayer, someone whom God is willing to listen to. Go to a profession. Otherwise, you run a great risk, especially if God is mad at you to begin with, trying to repair the damage yourself. Engage the skilled intermediary, and it will go back. There is a message from CFO to all of you, and that is that God longs to hear your voice saying your own prayers. That does not mean that there are not many times when we go to other people and ask them to pray for us and with us and bless us but we must learn to do our own praying. Praying is not a last resort. It is not like dialing 911 when you every other remedy and everything else has failed. Prayer is something which you do as a first resort because God has made us prayers. Whether we are praying prayers or abstaining from praying prayers. Nevertheless, what is fundamental about us as human beings is that we were made to pray, made to talk to God. The camps farthest out claim to be a school of prayer and a laboratory of prayer. Here we talk about it. Here we do it. Here we send you forth to do some more of it. What is 
a way into all of this. Where do we begin talking about prayer? Not, I think, with Genesis 20. Much of which Jesus said had been said by the great of his faith, the Hebrew faith. But there is one thing that is unpredictable, refreshing, and disarming, and that is the term of familiarity with which he approached God. He called God Abba, which is translated into English best by the familiar word Daddy. Not even Daddy. God is not as far away as the end of the universe. God is not as far away as the North Pole. God is not as far away as the Atlantic is from the Pacific. God is not in the next room or halfway across this room. God is face to face with us or closer than that. And that's not bad, that's good. God longs to embrace us and to kiss us with a holy kiss. Not want God to be that close because of a something that we have done or something that we have become and we're sure that if we were ever to meet God that close that God would know it and would not like it and we fear the expression of God's disapproval and so a God who is at an arm's length or a continent's length or a creation's length is sometimes a much more comfortable God for us to contemplate. But that isn't the kind of God we have. We have one who is near, who can hear us, who can know us, who can forgive us, who can encourage us. To call God Daddy is not inappropriate. It is not cheeky, not presumptuous, not rude. Daddy is God's name. That's the right word for the right situation. Yes, God is the God of sun, moon, and stars. Yes, God created what is beyond time. God created space and what is beyond space. God peopled this earth with thousands and tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of life forms, and that doesn't take away from God's being as close to us as the ones we have cried out to in our great need and in our littleness, Mommy, Daddy whichever parent figure is near to help. A second position of who God is to us is that God has taught us through Jesus to ask and to seek and to knock. There are people who believe that we should not disturb an imperturbable universe that we should learn to adjust to what is. And it sounds on the surface like good advice, but how are we to deal with the commands to ask and to seek and to knock to obey them? If I were to serve you dinner, and I can't tell you the chances, the remote chances of that ever coming to pass, I'm not very hospitable when it comes to meals. I've just really never learned to cook. But let's say that at this wonderful season of the year when 
corn is in abundance, and I do know how to boil corn. I put it on the table, but there's no, there's no butter. And maybe I ask my guest, is there anything missing? Or maybe they have such a sense of confidence in me as their friend that they can sort of clear their throat and say, Greg, is there any salt and butter? And it comes by my retrieving it for them. We do not immediately pass from the illustration of asking for salt and butting them and understanding how it is that God deals with our asking, seeking, and knocking. There is not an exact equivalent, and trying to figure out what the relationship between the two is a matter of great experience, and I hope maybe somehow to find some of the words to describe that later in the week. What I do want to say tonight is that God expects us to imagine. That is, God wishes us to image circumstances for ourselves and those whom we love that are more harmonious and healthy and peaceful than what we now know. And that somehow in the asking, we are either given or we are given the vision of how it is that we can be co-workers with God to bring this greater beauty and peace and order into our lives. We are not God, but we are God's kids. A parable of Jesus Jesus told them this parable about their need to pray always and not to lose heart. He said, in a certain city there was a judge who neither feared had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, grant me justice against my opponent. For a while he refused, but later he said to himself, though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually coming. The Bible to us so frequently as an utterly sober book wearing a permanent frown that when we come across humor, we don't dare laugh. But here is an aggressive, noisy, pushy, obnoxious, insistent, unyielding person banging on the doors of the halls of justice, banging on the chambers of this particular judge, and saying, give me justice, give me justice. All the judge wants is peace and quiet. The judge isn't noble. The judge isn't slavishly devoted to the high calling of his profession. He just wants to get rid of a pest, and so he surrenders. 
He wants her out of his so badly that he agrees with her. Luke tells us in introducing the parable why it is that Jesus told it that we might always pray. There's a phrase that is found again and again in Scripture. How much more? If a woman who is all the adjectives that I said she was is able to convince a not particularly conscientious judge that her words should be heeded. How much more have we the right to stand in the presence of God and say what is on our hearts? Not to receive as we understand justice, but to receive some answer which in the fullness of time gives us the measure of peace that we were seeking. quitting time. Um, we had a, a talk of about this length last night, and that seems like a nice length for a talk. Jack, uh, the prayer for peace will come from your leadership, or not? Need, need not. All right. Let's join with these other camps that are gathering, and with CFOers the world round, envisioning the whole world which God has in hand, cradling it and singing lullabies to it and reassuring it that despite its present hurts, that in the fullness of time and according to God's presence, all will be right. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily. I'm sorry. Let peace on earth and let it begin with me. Amen. Fortunately, God knows our prayers even when we don't know our prayers.